The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello, and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of labiaplasty. We go deep with plastic surgeon Dr. Amira Sankey. Amira opens up about this commonly performed cosmetic procedure where the labia minora, or the frilly bits as I like to call them, are surgically decreased using different surgical techniques. Other words used to describe the labia minora are flip-flaps, rooster head, laffy taffy, love curtains, pink shutters, female lapels, and one of my favourites, scrunchy puss. Do you have a name for yours? Now, whether you do or not, the labia minora play an important role in women. They cover and protect the urinary and vaginal openings. During lovemaking, moving the labia minora can also stimulate the extremely sensitive clitoris. And we know that the majority of women need clitoral stimulation to have an orgasm. Some women, however, choose to have their labia trimmed, and in this episode, we find out why. Dr. Amira Sankey is a specialist plastic surgeon based in Sydney South. She is one of only 15 female plastic surgeons in New South Wales. Let's hear it for her and let's hear it for the girl surgeons. She is also a board member and a chair of education for the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons. Her board responsibilities include organising aesthetic education for qualified and training plastic surgeons, as well as providing community education about the difference between plastic and cosmetic surgeons. She has a PhD in melanoma, but her main area of practice is in body contouring after pregnancy or weight loss. Dr. Sankey is a strong advocate for women's health and the empowerment that plastic surgery can bring women. She's married to a reconstructive plastic surgeon and they have two children. So in this episode, I ask Amira, what is the difference between a plastic surgeon and cosmetic surgeon? Labiaplasty, what is it? Who asks for it and why? What criteria need to be met? How is it done? What can go wrong? What are the risks? But what can go right? How can the patient prepare for a labiaplasty? How does their surgeon prepare? What are the satisfaction rates? How soon after surgery can someone have penetrative sex? Where is it done? Are there Medicare rebates? I hope you enjoy our chat. Dr. Amira Sankey. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of weird to be speaking to you in a way because it was about 20 years ago that we graduated from med school at University of New South Wales. Isn't that right? It's far too long and we shouldn't <laughs> emphasise that fact, especially as a plastic <laughs> surgeon. I'm always trying to talk down my age. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we graduated from uni about, uh, yeah, two decades ago and now you're a busy plastic surgeon. Can you tell us about your journey from med school, you know, those final days to graduating to now being a busy plastic surgeon? Yeah. What have you done to get where you are now? It's a long route and what we started with was internship at RPA and at RPA I realised pretty quickly that I wanted to be a surgeon. Chris O'Brien was there. It was just exciting times. I went into the melanoma unit and uh, fell in love with melanoma surgery Um, and then it was two years of surgical residency 
um, two years of general surgery training. And during my general surgery time, I started a PhD in melanoma. And then I got onto plastics, which was just a further four years of plastic surgery training. And then after that, I did about 18 months of um, uh, what we call a fellowship, which is where we decide to subspecialize in an area. And I decided to subspecialize in aesthetic plastic surgery. So plastic surgery predominantly to make people look better to improve their self-esteem and their confidence. Um, and then here we are. So I remember, Tash, interestingly, I went back to school and spoke to the Year 9 girls for a careers day. And uh, they were all 15 years old at the time. And I said to them, it took your entire lifetime for me to become a plastic <laughs> surgeon. <laughs> now, that's putting things into perspective, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, they all looked at me and thought, right, so I'm not doing that then. <laughs> but you took you you would have had some time off because you had a couple of kids. You've got two children. Yeah. So does that, in, yeah. does that exclude the time you took off or, you know, is that so, your total training time? Yeah, so my kids are four years apart. So one of them was before the plastic surgery training started, um, and that was the year that I also finished off my PhD. And the second one was straight after my plastic surgery training. So I went into my part two fellowship exam uh, with a very big tummy, which I think got the sympathy vote from my examiners. <laughs> they couldn't be too harsh on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations because you're one of only at the moment 15 female plastic surgeons in New South Wales. So well done. Thanks, Tash. Yeah, and it's something that's changing very rapidly, which is fantastic. There are many, many female training um, plastic surgeons at the moment, which is just marvellous. On that note, what is the difference between a plastic surgeon and a cosmetic surgeon? That is an excellent question. So a plastic surgeon has been through all the years of training that I just described and has a fellowship from the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons specifically in plastic surgery. A cosmetic surgeon is anyone who is a doctor, so graduates from medical school um, at a minimum and can go out there and just start operating on people um, to improve their appearance. So there are some cosmetic surgeons who are general surgeons, um, dermatologists. Um, they have some kind of other fellowship, but they haven't actually done specifically plastic surgery training. Um, it's a strange loophole in such a highly regulated country like Australia that anyone can call themselves a surgeon. So you can have a podiatrist who calls themselves a surgeon. Um, and it's something that uh, people are not really aware of. It's a, it's a strange loophole, and I think so long as people are aware of who they're actually dealing with, and that's fine, that's their own active decision to take, but I just think there should be more transparency um, out there and more regulation in our industry. So how do people research the surgeon that they are thinking of seeing? What would you recommend they do? Uh, two very simple things. Uh, a plastic surgeon has the letters F-R-A-C-S after their names um, and often we then put in brackets plastic. Um, and the other way to check is if they're a member of the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, ASPS. Very good tip. Thank you very much. Because I, yeah, I think a lot of people simple. get lost in all of that. It's a bit like the fertility specialists. Um, you know, there are People like me who've done that extra training and we yes. have a qualification called CREI and then there are other people who haven't um, achieved that qualification but who can still practice fertility medicine. It doesn't mean that they're better or worse than us. It just means yep. that there's extra training on our part and for some people that 
that means a lot for others. They don't really care. I just think is as, as it's important that patients know uh, exactly. the, the differences. And at the end of the day, it's about their choice and uh, and transparency is, is is exactly as you said. It that's it, that's key, isn't it? Yeah, key, key, absolutely key. Everyone um, just wants to know uh, what they're dealing with and wants not to be duped and to understand the system. And it's a complicated system. So FRACS and a member of us, it's as simple as that. Now, there are so many things that I could talk about with you, but for this episode, I wanted to focus on labiaplasty and uh, why it happens. But before I go into all of those juicy questions, can you give us a bit of a history of what what, what labiaplasty is for our listeners? What is it? When did it start? How did it evolve? Yeah, labiaplastia is an interesting operation um, in that it is simply surgical reduction in the size of the labia minora, um, and that can be both to improve appearance of the Doctor, labia minora. Doctor, what's a labia minora? Minora, I knew you were going to ask that, you clever woman. <laughs> so labia minora are the um, minor lips, the smaller lips of the vulva. So we've got the labia majora, which are the big chunky fat lips on the outside of the vulva, and then the labia minora are the smaller ones that poke out from um, the within pink the... frilly bits, I like to call them. Yes, yes. Generally pink. And... There can be different shades, different shades of labia, but generally... You know, they're kind of a, a, yeah, pink, a kind of a brown, hue of yeah, pale pink with a dark brown filling. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the other interesting anatomical term that I just used is the term vulva. So a lot of us just grow up thinking that that entire bit, the female genital, is called the vagina, but the vagina is the tube, um, and the bits in front, um, we just the entire exterior bit, we call the vulva. Would that be correct, Tash? That's your area. That's your expertise. Oh, uh, it's. I reckon it's probably as much your area as as it is mine. <laughs> but yeah, that's the general gist. And the fascinating thing about labiaplasty is that um, look, the number of labiaplasty performed in the USA um, has increased by two hundred percent in the past five years. Um, so there's a real boom in labiaplasty surgery, and, and it's a very interesting thing to see why that's happened. A lot of people would say that it's just because we are having more Brazilians, we're waxing, mm. and we can see it more. Um, and then there's a lot of social and psychological factors. Um, more friends are having it. So if one friend has it, then it makes other people want to have it. Um, we're more aware of normal and abnormal because of the internet and social media. Um, so labiaplasty has become more mainstream. It's not just a, um, uh, something to have behind quiet, um, private doors. We're, we're much more aware of our genitals and what we can do to make them look and feel better. I just hate the words normal and abnormal when it's applied to anatomy though, you know, because yeah. there's just a, yeah. it's like the rainbow. There's just different shades and different variations. But to say something yeah. is abnormal, oh, I try and avoid that word a lot. Um, but, you know, what is, a, what is a, a common reason why women come in for this procedure, you know, as far as you see it? Most of my patients are coming in for a functional concern. So most of my patients are coming in because the labia minora are, are quite large um, and as a result, they interfere with their ability to wear clothing comfortably. They chase against their underpants. They're concerned that when they go to the beach that their labia minora might poke out of their swimming costume and cause embarrassment. I've done numerous really young women, you know, 16, 17-year-olds who are gymnasts 
or ballerinas and for that same reason they can't plie, they can't do the splits because they're scared that they might embarrass themselves. Um, so they are my ideal patient patients that are doing it for functional reasons um, because as you just said there's a big spectrum in what normal is and what is acceptable and what one woman's unacceptable labia minora um, are will be another woman's perfect. Mm. But you kind of think that maybe we should adapt our clothing to our labia rather than our labia to our clothing, <laughs> I would think. Come on, people. I'm sure we can, you know, with all respect, Amira, and for what you do, I just that makes yeah. me think a lot about, you know, that, you know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. just change but, your clothing a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I do look at some young women and I do feel sorry for them because – you can see that they are chafed and they are uncomfortable and it's causing functional problems. But interestingly, look, there was this um, Turkish study where um, 28% of women who were requesting the surgery actually knew that they were normal, mm. um, to use that horrible word. So so one third of women who are wanting this operation actually know they're normal. They just want it to look more normal. They want it to look beautiful. Different. Um, yeah, yeah. And I try to um, push those patients away. I try to resist operating on someone that I think um, doesn't really have any functional issues because um, it's going to be harder to please them. It's harder to work out if they have body dysmorphia. Um, it's harder to work out if they're, if they're doing the surgery for good reasons and if they're going to be happy afterwards. Um, you know, if someone's um, rates their body already an eight out of ten, I've got to get them to a nine or a ten out of ten to make them happy, and that's really, really hard. Mm. I remember a case when I was at RPA as a trainee of a woman who came in and she was asking for labiaplasty, and I clearly remember one labia menorah, pink frilly bit, was clearly much longer and and, and different to the other side. So yeah. I, I, I could understand where she was coming from because it was causing her many issues, um, not just with what she was wearing, but in the bedroom and her confidence. So even, yes. even if there wasn't yeah. any sex involved or clothing involved, she just felt uncomfortable with that. And then yeah. uh, I, I didn't perform the procedure myself. It was another doctor who did one of my... Uh, one of my bosses, but uh, afterwards she had quite a lot of satisfaction. So satisfaction rates, tell me more about those in labiaplasty. So the satisfaction is quite high. Um, the satisfaction rate is about 85%. 85% um, of women will be moderately to extremely satisfied after the procedure. Um, and that comes from a study done by an amazing Australian clinical psychologist called Gemma Sharp. Um, and interestingly, Gemma Sharp found that women were less likely to be satisfied if they had preoperatively any psychiatric disorders or anxiety issues, or interestingly, if they had a romantic partner. So, because in that situation, um, the pressure is on. You're not just there to satisfy and make sure you get a good result to make you happy. You're trying to make someone else happy as well, um, which is just another Pandora's box that I just opened up for you there, Tash. <laughs> That's for another episode <laughs> with maybe Gemma, Gemma Sharp. Yeah, Gemma's marvellous. So she um, she did a post, um, she did a doctoral, um, she did a PhD in labiaplasty and the psychological issues surrounded around it. And she's Australian, is she? Yes. Fantastic. I'll have yeah. to knock on her door. So, 
Absolutely. So labiaplasty does increase self-esteem um, and um, it, it makes women very, very happy. Um, and I think that we don't need to be so, we said don't classify into normal and abnormal, but at the same time, don't shy away from things because you feel like you're doing something that uh, disempowers you. I think labiaplasty surgery can really empower women because it's improving their self-esteem and their confidence, um, both in the bedroom and also just generally. Yeah. I can, from a personal perspective, understand that because I had laser hair removal and it, 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 that was 10 years ago and it seriously was one of the best things I have ever done uh, for my self-confidence. Yeah. So I can, I can understand that. Now in preparing for a labiaplasty, how does a woman prepare for a labiaplasty? Um, so I think the way to prepare for a labiaplasty, there's there's three phases. The first is to just do your own research online, make sure it sounds like um, it's going to make you happy, that the procedure sounds right for you. Um, it's always wonderful to be able to talk to friends, um, especially someone who'd had, who's had the procedure. But then the next stage would be to go to your GP and get a referral to a, a plastic surgeon or a gynecologist who's got an interest in labiaplasty. Um, I think it's a wise decision to even see more than one specialist. You know, it can be really interesting getting more than one opinion. Um, and likewise, if you meet that specialist and you don't like them, just walk out. You've got that choice. Just because you've gone to see someone doesn't mean you have to necessarily have surgery with them. Um, plastic surgery is very much about um, finding a good surgeon who can offer you what you're seeking, but also about gelling with them and knowing that they can offer you post-operative support. Um, and the final thing is, is to think about it, not to race into any decision. Uh, with a lot of my plastic surgery procedures, I tell people, you know, you would always do your due diligence if you were building a house or buying shares. This is no different. This is even more important. This is your health and you should make good decisions. So when they see you, obviously you consent them for the procedure. What's your consent yeah. cover? Um, so we talk about um, how the procedure's done and there's a few options there and the expectations of their recovery. So there's, of course, a little bit of pain and discomfort afterwards. Um, and most people are able to go back to work after a few days um, and then there's no horse riding. I was going to say uh, maybe walk in weeks. a bit funny to work. <laughs> Stay at home. So- yeah, yeah, it's a little bit tender and it depends on what kind of job people are doing. So mm. interestingly, standing is easier than sitting. Mm. Um, but most people, I, I'm just shocked how quickly they recover um, and do pretty well and are, and are sort of able to get back to work at least at least um, within um, a week. And how about sex post labiaplasty? How soon does that yeah, happen? Can yeah, happen? I'll tell you a funny story. So I had a patient who rang up um, at about day 10 post labiaplasty and uh, she said, look, I've just forgotten when doctors said I could have sex. And my receptionist said, look, at least four weeks. And the girl says, oops. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I don't even know how she managed to do that. I would have thought it would be excruciating. So, yeah, I usually suggest waiting at least four weeks. Um, or when, when your appetite for it comes back, when it feels okay, then you're good to go. Yeah. That's uh, and listening to your own body and what your body's telling so you. True. Mm. Absolutely spot on, spot on. 
Um, but the other important part of the consultation is to talk about the risks of labiaplasty um, because no surgery is without risks, unfortunately. Um, and in the short term, um, we just worry about bleeding and needing to go back to theatre for that. Um, pain, infection, a little bit of the wound separating. Unfortunately, it's a part of the body that has a fantastic blood supply, which means it heals really quickly. Um, but the more serious long-term risks are painful intercourse and chronic pain syndromes. Um, and that is the one that we all fear. That's the, you know, because our goal in, as surgeons is to make people's lives better. It is, it is a great failure and heartbreaking if we make someone's life worse. How often do they do do they get the chronic pain syndrome? Pretty rarely, mm. pretty pretty rarely. Um, I've never seen one, fortunately, but I know colleagues who have managed um, uh, people with chronic pain syndrome. Um, and just to educate our listeners, why does that happen? So there are nerves that um, feed and give um, feeling to all parts of our body. And, of course, they have to be cut during the surgery and if they grow back wrongly or um, if the surgery has problems afterwards and leads to many complications that then leads to those nerves playing up, um, then chronic pain can result um, requiring medication and possibly further surgery to help fix it. And are there Medicare rebates for labiaplasty or does it depend on the reason? Yeah, it does depend on the reason. So um, if there are um, significant congenital problems with the vulva and the labia, it's um, covered. Um, and then basically you have to have gigantic labia minora for it to be covered. Uh, so the labia minora have to extend out um, from the um, vagina by about six centimetres. So you actually have to, to physically qualify. measure it for someone. Can you believe it? Yeah. Like, can you imagine I've got a woman's legs open in front of me and I'm getting out a plastic ruler to measure? I mean, it's just ridiculous. And we have to provide six centimetres. Six centimetres. That's, that, that's on full stretch. So you're stretching out the labia menorah. Because yeah. you can, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can uh, stretch that thing pretty far. Yeah, so are you really stuff. giving it a really good stretch? <laughs> To the max, because this is important, isn't it? I mean, it could get someone exactly. over the line or not. Absolutely. I yeah. Mean, this is the ridiculousness of our medical, Medicare criteria. And where did those criteria even come from? You know, some paper that was probably written decades ago to say that it's only valid if it's more than six centimetres. Um, so, um, and I think it's really embarrassing um, to the patient that we have to provide photographic evidence of that because, um, as you know, Medicare can choose to audit us um, and if they audit me for my labiaplasty item number use, then they'll look at those patients' photos to check that they qualified. So every person that gets reviewed for this operation has measurements taken and photos. Yep. Wow. Yep. Anything else that they need to know about? Um. No, I think I think that's really, really about it, um, except to say that, you know, surgery is surgery and always has risks and the way to know if it's the right thing for you is to make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks and the best way of knowing that is to speak to the surgeon and, mm. um, and yeah, they will hopefully give you a good, honest rundown of it. And then after the operation, do they go home the same day? Yeah, it's a day surgery operation and we give our patients a list of do's and don'ts afterwards, how to wash and clean themselves. So I just usually suggest a daily shower mm -hmm. um, and then apply and cause cigar antibiotic ointment along the suture line. And the sutures we use are dissolving, so none of the stitches need to come out because it's a pretty delicate area. 
um, and they dissolve over the, over the next one to two weeks. Um, whether you have your period or not before or after is fine. Um, the only thing that having your period does is that it can kind of confuse matters if, you know, you're bleeding and you're not too sure if it's the wound or if it's your um, menstrual blood coming through. So do you try and schedule this when they're not having a period? Yeah, ideally. But then there's also a lot of other factors that come into play, like, um, you know, whether they've got a holiday planned or whether work's busy or not and and whether their kids are on school holidays or in school time. There's so many other things in a woman's life that um, she has to factor in when she's scheduling surgery to make things as easy as possible for herself and her family. And generally, this procedure is done in both public and private sectors, I understand. Um, yeah, it, it can be done in the public if, if someone qualifies for the Medicare item number. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic information. Is there anything else we need to know about labiaplasty? Um, look, I, I touched a little bit on body dysmorphic disorder. Um, and that does occur in labiaplasty surgery as well. So body dysmorphic disorder is when someone has an abnormally negative perception. Sorry about the cockatoos in the background. That's okay. <laughs> abnormally negative perception of a body part um, and they obsess over it and they think other people are very aware of it um, and surgery can sometimes be the answer but more often than not it's um, not the answer and that person does not need to see a surgeon. They need help from a, from a clinical psychologist instead. So Gemma Sharp, is she a good person to interview about this? Yeah, Gemma would be marvellous to interview. She's a very intelligent um, and very um, learned woman. Just like yourself, Amira. Oh, just like you, Dr. Cash. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I have some getting to know you questions now. Oh, fantastic. Now, which people have been your biggest inspirations? Um, that one is really easy. I would say my mum and dad, um, and actually even my mother-in-law and father-in-law. So I, I look at, um, they're all first generation migrants and, um, I just really admire the fact that they left their countries and came and set up here and came good, you know, just really worked hard and cared for other people. My parents in particular I'm inspired by because they're both doctors and my dad's a surgeon, my mum's a GP. Um, and they've really shown me the importance of looking after not just patients but the people around you. So mum and dad have supported a lot of um, refugees and a lot of um, doctors who have come out to Australia and had to do the um, Australian medical qualifications and they've helped them and sponsored them um, to get them through. Because your parents are Syrian, um, aren't they? Syrian, yeah, Syrian. Mm. yeah, exactly. Gosh, you've got a good memory. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the world is a complicated and difficult place and it's really important for us to all look after each other and I'm really inspired by that. Amazing. And your husband is a plastic surgeon as well. Um, yes, you guys work together. Family. You're a power <laughs> couple from what I see. Yeah. So my husband, Ilias Kotrinakis, he does the other side of plastic surgery. He does all the reconstructive stuff. So skin cancer work, trauma surgery, hand surgery. We're a nice yin yang. Where did you guys meet? We met at RPA, so he was the upper GI um, registrar um, and I was the colorectal intern 
And um, I rang him up one day to get a consultation for one of my patients and, and the rest is just, it's just love at first sight. <laughs> That's so Grey's Anatomy slash ER. God, dream, dream. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, pretty cute. Now, uh, favourite books do you read, Amira? Do you have time to read? Uh, yeah, a little bit of time. The thing that I'm really enjoying at the moment is reading with my kids. So I have a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old and there is something really beautiful about reading the classics that you enjoyed to your kids and going through that experience all over again. So at the moment I'm making my way through the C.S. Lewis um, Lion, Witch and Wardrobe novels and I love Roald Dahl. Mm. Um, there's something so beautiful and simple and and precious about um, children's classic books. Um, so many messages that I think a lot of adults, if they reread them, uh, would become <laughs> much better people. Mm. Um, but in terms of, because I know you're really into um, self-help books um, and and the best one that I've ever read is the one by um, Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In. That is a fantastic book. And I try to give that book to each of my registrars uh, mm. when they finish the term about teaching women to to lean in, to man up. Ha. I love it, love it. Lean in. Okay, you know what? I have a confession. I have that book and I've had it for years but I haven't read it. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Oh, yeah, I know. So there you go. That's what you're going to do with the rest of your Sunday. I, I, oh, I'm, I'm going to the, the Botanic Gardens today. Oh, that's beautiful yeah, as well. Yeah, so, but lean in. Yeah, I'll have to put it on that um, that pile. I have yeah. heard Cheryl Sandberg talk a lot about the book through podcasts. The last one I listened to with Oprah, okay. she talked about it. So I definitely have to follow that up. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> and uh, songs that make you happy. Do you play music in your operating theatre? Yeah, yeah. Do you hear the music that you're playing? I, I sometimes even wonder if I'm if the music is there just to keep the people around me quiet mm. so that I can concentrate or if I'm actually listening to it. And I think I hear it occasionally. But, but yes, um, I play music while I'm operating um, and I love it all. I love pop. I love classic. I love rock. I love R&B. The wog in me comes out <laughs> in my R&B. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love the wog in you. Um, <clears throat> the thing that I just discovered recently was um, uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons has been redone mm. by this dude called Richter, and that is really cool. That is a very, very cool thing to listen to. Is that R-I-C-H-T-E-R? Okay. Yeah. Richter. Okay. Is yeah, that like a modern spin on it? It's like a modern spin on the Four Seasons. Okay. So you, you'll totally recognise it. It's not like it's weird and abstract or anything like that. It's it's very beautiful but just slightly more modern. Lovely. And your dream collaboration, do you have one? Um, so if I could change caps, then my dream collaboration would be to get together all the great fashion designers of the past, you know, Coco Chanel and Karl Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent and have them all in a room together and be in that room and listen to their creative genius. Um, because like you, I love clothes, love fashion um, and, and those incredible minds that came up with beautiful structures to to make women feel more wonderful. I mean, I just love, love fashion and, and what, the creativity of design. I remember you well at uh, at uni. You always used to wear very nice designer clothes. 
and I always used to, yeah, and I I remember trying to guess what you were wearing. I I never really got it right though. (laughs) Isn't it funny what we remember? Because I remember turning up to the first day of uni in a Bonds t-shirt and Doc Martin. (laughs) (laughs) God, I don't remember what I wore my first year of uni. But yes, I remember often admiring your clothing, Doctor. Ah, thanks, Tash. You too. You too. (laughs) You too. Um, Do you think, to reflect a question back on you, do you think patients respond to what we're wearing, that they make up their mind about us by how we look and our appearance? Uh, I'm sure they do. And um, because, you know, uh, clothing is a sense of expressivity, express, I can't even say it, expressivity. Yeah. Um, And I thought about that a lot because I now wear scrubs. I don't wear clothes or I call them civilian clothes anymore. I just wear my own denim scrubs or just the scrubs that I get from the hospital uh, because I feel comfortable wearing that clothing. I don't have to make a decision every day about what to wear. And initially when I first started wearing scrubs, I thought about it and I thought, okay, how are my patients going to respond to this? But I get a lot of positive feedback. I have a lot of patients saying to me, I love your your denim scrubs. They're really cool. And uh, that makes me feel good because I've not had to think about about it that day. I've just put it on and I turn up. Yeah, it's nice having a uniform. Yeah. So I love, I love wearing a uniform. I absolutely love it. White coat, nah. I don't miss wearing white coats. I used to think they were always really grubby. Um, yeah, it's a good sign that you are a doctor clinician if you're in a public hospital setting so that people know who you are, but I think that's really old school, but I still have a lot of respect for, you know, that old school, but in the modern era, I don't see it in my world, but I know of course worldwide, a lot of people wear white coats still. I don't know. What are your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I've been wearing a lot of scrubs lately for COVID reasons because, it, it, you know, COVID's really heightened our sense of hygiene and it just makes so much more sense for us to be uh, wearing fresh, freshly laundered clothes every day when we see patients um, and similarly not taking home whatever we've seen through the day to our families and into our houses. Mm. Um, in the US, everyone wears a white coat. You know, that's just what the doctors wear. That's how you recognise who the doctor is Mm. as opposed to the receptionist. Um, And people really recognise and appreciate and have a a visually locked-in image of what the surgeon should look like. Yeah, which Um, then changes their psychology and... and, uh, Exactly, and how they respond to you and their confidence in you. Mm. Lovely. I loved chatting to you today. Thanks, Samira. Thanks, Tash. Loved it as well. Thank Next episode, much. we are talking about body contouring post weight loss and pregnancy. Chat then. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Amira Sankey. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Pretty soon, I'll share an episode that I've also done with Amira about body contouring post pregnancy and weight loss. So stay tuned for that one. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. And if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people I can interview, or books for us to share and read. Until next time, stay Fanny Tabulous.